technologies always had a big impact on geopolitics, on human condition over the course of history. So what's special now? We can look at the grand challenges that we're facing as humanity. There are a few that are obvious. Longer term is really a challenge to digital capitalism and democracy and the system itself. There were proposals to have energy as a foundation for money back in the early part of the 20th century. Welcome to the OrionX Download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas in technology that are changing the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Orion X Download. And as usual, I have with me Dr. Steve Perrineau, my brilliant colleague. Steve, how are you? Hi, Shaheen, and great to be here again, as always. Absolutely. So we have a major topic that we've been wanting to cover for a few years, and today is a good time to finally do this, and that is techno-politics. And we're going to unpack this in the next 30, 40 minutes and beyond. As you all know, we've been covering advanced tech under the umbrella of digital transformation for a few years now. That means IoT, 5G, HPC and supercomputing, AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, fintech in general. And as of recently, Steve, you've been looking at fusion and a bit of space. Now, we've noted a few years ago that the impact of technology on everything is just mushrooming, and that has an impact on global competitiveness and therefore on policy and supply chain. And we obviously see that out there in the gold rush frenzy that is observed towards advanced technologies, exascale supercomputers, quantum computing, AI for sure, space tech, biotech, robotics, on and on. So really, maybe the first question we can tackle before we unpack it further, is that technologies always had a big impact on geopolitics, on human condition over the course of history. So what's special now? And my view is that what's different now is its scope, its scale, and the speed, and the fact that the engine of technology this time is information. It's different. How do you see why technology now? Yes. Well, I think it's our thesis at Orion X that Technopolitics is coming to challenge geopolitics on, shall we say, at least an equal footing. That in the past, technology has been in service of geopolitics, but the physical configuration of the world, the oceans and the mountain ranges, the things that have defined borders and nation states and that nations have struggled over, has really dominated. And I think the very instant when things really changed clearly was the invention of nuclear weapons in 1945. Mm -hmm. And then the ability with intercontinental ballistic missiles to send those anywhere on the globe. So that became an existential thing. And it defined the post-war era throughout the rest of the 20th century. And it was a point where technology became so important that politics aligned around it. The Cold War was really a response to the fact that you couldn't fight a hot war, that they had to have some sort of peace in place between the the two great powers. And then again, from the end of World War II, Moore's Law went into force, particularly once we invented the transistor just shortly after the end of World War II. And that's the one that we've all experienced and we've seen how technology has become more and more important. So our frame is that right now, technology is becoming the platform and forcing function for geopolitics and the economy. And that it has been a major force in globalization and in trade around the globe and in obviously geopolitical relationships. 
Right on. So the other angle with our take is that supercomputing is the right lens to look at all of this. And some reasons behind that is that obviously supercomputing is representative of the super advanced technology and in many ways the early adopter part of it because you name it, it's there when you look at the whole supercomputing community. Second is that it's very comprehensive in how it looks at technologies from chips to apps to environmentals to how these humongous systems are organized and run. And then finally, it's extreme scale. It is global in its impact and it's pretty significant in its local setup. Yeah. You know, if you look at, again, in in the Cold War context and certainly today as well, what were the areas that were most regulated in terms of export controls and the technology that the U.S. and its national security establishment wanted to maintain a lead in? And one clearly is cryptography and intelligence. And we see how that's playing more and more importance in today's world. The next one was any information details about weapon systems, whether it be nuclear weapons or, or more conventional weapons ship fighters. But then the next one was supercomputers and later on chips. So we had for a long, long time and continue to have in a different form controls on the export of supercomputing technology, HPC technology. And that's been on an equal footing, really, with the controls on nuclear technology as well. So I think that supports the importance of that. And you've noted that scale is also a very effective moat. And these technologies, having them is an advantage, not having them is an obstacle. And especially these days when several of the advanced technologies are in short supply, having them in abundance, (laughs) not even in abundance, having them at all, gives you a very important moat. Yes. You know, if you take the largest 12 companies in the world today by market capitalization, 10 of them are American. And 10 of them are technology companies that all have a relationship with AI, which is the big area that everybody's thinking about right now. The one that's not is Saudi Aramco. Other one that's not American is TSMC. And we know how critical that is. Right to AI and compute infrastructure. Now, you know, the big picture that I've been pursuing for a long time, and others have too, is that human beings have gone from hunter-gatherers to agriculture, to industrial, to information digital now. And of course, reality is a lot more nuanced and there's a lot more overlap and there's not a very clear demarcation many, many times in history. But generally, that is representative of how things have advanced. The other one really is, what does technology mean? What does digital technology mean? And to me, it means decentralization. It means programmability. And it means a cultural alignment that is enforced by the technology rather than the other way around. And I think that's another consideration in geopolitics is that having access to technology is very important, but being aligned with it culturally is probably required to take proper advantage of it and turn it into the kind of competitive advantage that has some durability. What else comes to your mind in terms of things that we should point to? Well, I think over the sweep of history, you've seen that the level of technology that that mankind has, has greatly influenced social organization. So we went from hunter-gatherers, and that happened in small tribes and so forth, and without permanent locations necessarily. We evolved to agriculture, 
And then we ended up setting up basically systems that eventually evolved to feudal systems, but they, you know, they had rulers, they were authoritarian, and that was needed for mass human labor to cooperate in raising grains. And then as we progressed, we added more and more animal power. Then we wanted on to higher levels of physical power, like steam power. And we got into the industrial age. And it, it was concurrent with that, that we moved from kingdoms and feudal systems to having nation states and started to have more Republican and even some democratic forms of government and organization. And we had the rise of corporations and so forth. Then we went to chemical power and we were fueled by hydrocarbons in the 19th century. And the discovery of that, again, revolutionized everything and took industrialization to another level. You know, now we're transitioning away from petroleum and hydrocarbons to more and more focus on electrical energy as, as the foundation. And that, that electrical energy is more and more from renewables. And that's rising along with our revelation in communications, where communications are now ubiquitous, powerful in everybody's hands. And so I think both of those are forces for decentralization, as, as you've suggested. And we're gone from moving protons to now moving electrons, mm -hmm. and we're headed towards more and more usage of implementing photonic technologies. And it gets, you know, you're able to grow scale, you're able to grow speed and bandwidth and lower costs when you're able to move from protons to electrons to photons. That's right. That's right. And of course, the other consideration observation is that every time you get one of these big revolutions, everything changes. When you go from hunter-gatherer to agricultural age, now you had thousands of years to go through that transition, and that's another consideration. And then agricultural age to industrial was itself a couple of thousand years. And then from industrial to information, it's only a couple of hundred years. So the pace of change is incredibly rapid and gets faster. And that's part of the challenge because I don't think human beings were designed to go through change this fast. And what is the impact on the species? What is the impact on culture? What is the impact on what it takes for human beings to retain control or some kind of a supremacy here, right? And then in the face of AI, these are interesting observations. You know, we can look at, I think, the grand challenges that we're facing as humanity. And there are a few that are obvious. We've had the threat of nuclear destruction we've had for a long time. We've managed to manage that. Hopefully we continue to manage that. We have the climate crisis and somewhat associated with that is pandemics because it seems like pandemics are, are more likely as temperature rises. And of course, that is forcing and accelerating this transition that would have happened anyway towards more and more renewables for electrics, but it's making that more existential. We've got in the developed world, especially now, demographics and debt crises. So Populations are not replacing themselves. They're shrinking in places like Japan. Even China is now at the point of having a shrinking population. And yet, at the same time that these societies are aging, the amount of debt that we have, whether it's in the US or China and Europe, that the populations have to support is only growing. So we've got a mismatch between working age population and debt. And then we have the challenge of, of the AI rollout mm. and you know, what is that going to do to employment? What is that going to do to the way people work for positive and, and negative aspects as well? And as you've said, what is it going to do to society and social relationships? And we've already seen a lot of the issues in the social media sphere, which is just, you know, an earlier form of AI, basically. Algorithms that they use to 
determine what your identity is like on, on Facebook or some other social media. It's all algorithmically determined in terms of what you're exposed to and who you're exposed to. So if one agrees that those are the challenges and maybe there's some others I've missed, then what happens to our, how we organize? Do states become more authoritarian in response or do we see a greater trend toward decentralization and maybe focus more on city-states and regions? I don't know what you think about that. The whole notion of grand challenges is right on. And I think you covered the ones that I had in mind, nuclear pandemic, climate, and the challenge to the system itself, because the system is going to struggle to keep up with all these changes. And now it has to respond, which is the last one that you pointed out. And then, of course, AI. And the AI challenge, I believe, is in three categories. The short-term challenge is digital mistrust and the ability to have deep fakes and armed with the dissemination power of social media that's going to cause self-harm. So short-term is digital mistrust causing self-harm. Mid-term, I see it as digital labor, the ability to transition some jobs to heavily augmented or completely replaced by AI. And that doesn't have to be wholesale for it to have an impact, a disruptive impact on society. And that is going to challenge the economic models. So the mid-term digital labor and economic models. Longer term is really a challenge to digital capitalism and democracy and the system itself and the need for a new model. Those who get it right will have an advantage for the following many decades. So the stakes are very high to get this right. But I keep coming back to that decentralization, programmability, and cultural issue that you're not going to get it right in the absence of the right culture, the absence of the right structure, as you mentioned, going through the history, some of the practices have shifted, social activities and how work gets done has shifted, and that is poised to have to shift again. When it comes to the relationship between government and AI, there's two major sides to it. One is how do governments regulate AI, should they and in what manner? But the other is how should they employ AI? And we know they're going to employ AI. They're certainly going to employ AI in the military, and they're going to use it as part of the larger umbrella of information warfare and cyber warfare. But they're also going to use it to manage conventional warfare and logistics for conventional warfare. But then AI is going to be used in the other functions of government as well. It's going to be used in the court system. It's going to be used in the healthcare system. We're already seeing mm. extensive usage of AI in the healthcare system. So when is it appropriate for AI to contribute to writing legislation? It's going to happen. There's probably some intern on Capitol Hill who's already using ChatGPT to draft proposals for legislation. That's probably a good assumption. You're right. <laughs> now, it's also an observation that every time these big revolutions happen, while they impact everything, they solve some of the problems of the previous revolution and perhaps create problems of their own that perhaps other future revolutions are going to have to solve. So we do see the ability to solve some problems because we now have that capability. Industrialization solved a whole lot of problems. Medical technology solved a whole lot of problems, increased human longevity, etc. But also industrialization created the climate challenge that we now have. And you can now see that AI is going to solve some problems even as it produces some 
new problems, albeit those problems may just be transitory. Like how do we transition from where we are to AI nirvana? Even if you grant it that it's going to be all great, between now and when you get there, a whole lot of people might be impacted negatively. And that's a disruption to society that we can and should try to avoid. I don't know how we would decide what AI nirvana is, because AI is evolving on a time scale of exponentially on a time scale yes. of less than a year, right? That's so right. right now, and for the rest of this decade, it's going to grow a factor of E every year, if, if not higher. And who's growing it? <laughs> the 10 largest companies in the world. You know, they're in the pole position for scaling up to the most powerful models. So it's hard to imagine government doing that much to slow them down. You know, there's this movement that said, well, okay, we should take a six-month pause. It's not going to happen. No, that's impractical. Right? People, yeah. people are going to proceed. Yeah. And yeah. some individual like Jeff Hinton, very important leader, can resign from his position at one of these companies and sound the alarm, but it's not going to slow that company down from doing what they were going to do. No, I think things like that, well, first of all, it's so difficult to get consensus on anything let alone something that promises such big advantages. People are going to pursue it, and your best bet is to try to stay competent and stay in front of it and try to have good policies in place that allow your population to react to it properly. But I think it's coming. And as you mentioned, it's coming so fast that really the ability of humans to keep up with it is probably the rate-limiting step. So I think we're at the point now where the best we can do is think about guidelines and principles. It's very hard to imagine encoding legislation, you know, that's going to force some company to put weights on their AI to decrease how much electrical power they use in their large language model in its learning phase or to limit the number of GPUs that they throw at the next version. I'm reminded of a paper that we wrote at this point six years ago, was it? When we said, is HPC the future of AI? That was the paper. Mm -hmm. And I believe that paper ended with Asimov's laws. I just found it as we were talking. And the last sentence is, can we successfully program in Asimov's three laws? And I was delighted to see that those three laws are coming back into the conversation. I've been seeing them. Yes. By the way, in two days, Asimov's foundation, the second season, is going to go up. So we all need to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back slightly to Earth, one of the things that we mentioned is in the grand challenges is demographics and debt. And we haven't talked yet about the role of cryptocurrency and blockchain and Bitcoin, but those really were a response to demographics and debt. Bitcoin was introduced in the wake of the great financial crisis in the 2008-2009 timeframe with the paper published on Halloween Day 2008 and the first block beginning on January 3rd the following year. And what we're seeing in response to this demographics and debt challenge, as well as the other challenges that we're facing, is that there are growing strains in the fiat system. And the, the great financial crisis revealed that. And we've revealed it again as we saw the response to COVID and the money supply got pumped up a lot. Money got dropped from helicopters figuratively to the population to keep the economy alive. And we've seen the results in terms of inflation. We've seen the results in terms of high interest rates from the COVID response. So there are growing strains in the fiat system. And we're seeing also challenges to 
the dominance of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, in particular from the BRICS. Now, in the past, the euro was put together as more than two dozen nations now are in the euro, but they really have been primarily using that in their own trade group. It has not really been a challenge to the dollar, which continues to have the vast bulk of foreign trade, foreign exchange, and reserves for other central banks. But the BRICS, the core countries of Russia, China, India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia are looking to expand. And there are as many as 30 countries that are asking to join or in various stages. They're going to have a meeting next month, and it's expected that they'll at least double their membership and introduce another half dozen roughly countries into the formal organization. And they've started to promote the idea of a BRICS currency that would be a digital currency. We already have the Chinese Yuan that's been rolling out over the last couple of years. They intend to use that in trade along with the Belt and Road Initiative. We've seen central banks adding more and more gold to their reserves and trying to de-emphasize their dollar reserves in many cases. So this is important for two reasons. One is for the sort of geopolitics side, but there's a whole other side to it, which is the technology side, that once you have digital currency and blockchain, now you can enable finance operated by AIs, by AI agents. And that can include microtransactions from one agent to another, from one AI to another. Or when an AI wants to go purchase some data or when it wants to purchase some compute cycle. Right on. When I look at these changes, the top ones that come to mind are war, work, money, laws, health, art. Art is usually the canary in the coal mine <laughs> by being an early <laughs> indicator of the change that is coming. And even a spirituality itself. So as you mentioned, when it comes to money, that is uh, a representation of value. We've had several conversations on the nature of money and how it's been evolving and what's happening. And when you combine that with digitization, that really is where decentralization, programmability, and culture come right back in. And that programmability is critical to allow different forms of transactions and payments. And we had another blog where we talked about, this is also a few years ago, where we talked about people, organizations, and things, and that people-to-people, people-to-organization, organization-to-people, that kind of two-by-two has now become a three-by-three, where thing-to-thing payments and transactions, and people-to-things, and things-to-peoples, and organization-to-things, those permutations are going to want to be enabled. And for that to be enabled, it almost demands a digital infrastructure for those transactions to be worthwhile. And also you pointed out that the relationship between energy and value is obviously nothing new, and there have been structured and formalized ways of doing that for, for many decades, if not more than that. That's another observation. Yes, there were proposals to have energy as a foundation for money back in the early part of the 20th century. People such as Nicholas Tesla and even Ford and others thought that energy might be an appropriate foundation for money. Bitcoin is essentially encapsulated energy together with, of course, the cryptographic techniques that allow you to prevent it from being counterfeited or, or double spin and to create a decentralized ledger. But that encapsulated energy now is, while substantial, is not a huge contribution to the, the carbon budget, but it does have to be substantial in order to ensure value. And it's different from how we used to think about money, which is you create the money and then you have to secure it. You have to put it in a vault. You have to have armed guards. Well, now 
the security is automated. So you don't need, it is the vault. Mm. It is its own complement of armed guards. And it is its own Brinks truck to move it around. And in fact, anywhere on the globe. And because we have lightning and other second layer solutions for, for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, then we have the possibility of having very small transactions. And this is what enables things to things because they can be very rapid, very tiny if necessary, and then they can be bulk settled back to the main chain at some future date, just as we have a, a multi-layered payment system and dollar system. So let's end this episode and we'll hope to come back to it more regularly with the quote soft power that cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin, can enable and the master's thesis that has been getting quite a bit of attention. Yes, that one was entitled Soft War. It was written by a major who did a master's degree at MIT and he's gone a bit quiet. He's, you know, he's back on duty, but he also referred to bit power. So the theme is that more and more we're in a cyber war and information war. Less and less, we may be in a kinetic war. To some extent, you say nuclear weapons are obsolete because you can't really use them. They're just sort of there <laughs> to ward other people off. And we have the same issue with robotics and drones and AI, possibly passing the threshold that nuclear weapons pass that is just existentially dangerous to humans. And, you know, so there are pressures on us to find other ways to compete. And so the software idea is competing in, in cyberspace with hash power and Bitcoin is, would be one way to do that. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Steve. We're going to come back to this because as we get more into policy and more into the analysis of what is going on in the world today, we think this kind of a technology-based, technology-centered lens is helpful in pointing out to new ways of explaining things that sometimes make really very good sense. So we're excited about that and hope you are too. Okay, thank you. It's been interesting. I think we can declare now that we're techno-politicians. <laughs> we're not running for anything, but in terms of we'd like to talk about techno-policy at least. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, take care. See you later. Okay, take care. Bye.